the Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. And reporter Ari Fife attended a recent Oklahoma City Council meeting at which two ordinances were discussed that would have attached heavy penalties to living in an encampment. Her latest story looks at the community pushback to those ordinances and the latest effort from the city to address homelessness. Ari, what can you tell us about uh, those ordinances? What would they have done? So Ward 8 Councilmember Mark Stonecipher introduced these ordinances that would have classified living in an encampment as trespassing. And anyone who violated the ordinances could have been subject to a citation, which could have come with a fine, or an arrest, which could have led to jail time. Now, um, there was a lot of uh, hoopla about that proposal prior to the meeting uh, where they were on the agenda. What what was that city council meeting like when those were discussed? Yeah, so there were a ton of people, about 150 people total in attendance, and about 40 of those gave public comment. And of those 40, the vast majority were against the ordinances. And they were coming from all sorts of different angles to the discussion. Some were clergy members, some were business owners, some were people who were formerly homeless or had family members who were homeless. And many of them were advocating for expanded street outreach, pointing to Milwaukee and Houston as successful examples of really large outreach systems. Well, after all that public input, eventually the council had to vote. What happened? So... Originally, Stonecipher wanted to defer that vote to introduce the ordinances until the end of January, but Mayor David Holt suggested for logistical reasons that he just strike it all together, and um, Stonecipher listened to that suggestion. All right, so there was no vote. They pulled the ordinances. Right. All right. Uh, Do those suggest any kind of a broader picture, a bigger trend in Oklahoma City? Yeah, so some say that there's been a longstanding pattern of city leaders not really caring, failing to care for um, people who are homeless in our city. They point to a 2015 ordinance that um, essentially banned panhandling in certain areas of the city that was later declared unconstitutional. Um, But some say that this could suggest a potential turning point as Obviously, the panhandling ban passed, but Stonecipher's ordinances were struck before even being introduced. Now, uh, a lot of the community members at, uh, the, who attended the meeting were calling for uh, expanded street outreach, as you mentioned. Is that something the city might consider? Yeah. So Lindsay Cates, who's a city employee, actually mentioned in that meeting that the city is working on a contract now with a service provider to start a street outreach pilot program. And they plan on adding two new teams. And this would be the first time that city funding is going to this sort of outreach. So what will that program look like? And how how soon might that start? So Lindsay Kate said that city leaders are still kind of determining that model, but they do know that the teams will be coordinating with the local fire department and the local police department. And 
the teams will consist of mental health professionals, case managers, and people with personal experience with either substance abuse or mental health crises that can kind of help their clients through that recovery process. And the city hopes to start this pilot program in early 2023 after that contract is approved by the city council. Now, what about, uh, you mentioned Stone Cipher or any other council members that might have uh, favored those ordinances. Um, how do they feel about the idea of, uh, you know, funding street outreach? So Stone Cipher didn't respond to multiple interview requests, but I was able to get a hold of Ward 4 Council Member Todd Stone, who was one of the co-sponsors for the ordinances, and he actually said that he would be supportive of the city funding street outreach. He said that he thought it was necessary, and he hopes that if the first two teams prove to be effective, that it's a program that can expand in the future. All right. Well, great. Thanks, Ari. You can read uh, Ari's story about those proposed ordinances and the city's response and all her other investigative work on our website, oklahomawatch.org. This year, more than 130 Oklahomans described what it's like to struggle with mental health in an Oklahoma Watch survey. In light of a federal investigation into the state's mental health care, reporter Whitney Bryan reviewed those stories and visited with some of those survey participants about the challenges they face. Whitney, what have you learned from those survey results and from the people who shared their stories with you? Well, I think the first thing is these folks who filled out the survey, you know, we had about 130, as you said, they are all extremely frustrated. Um, These folks said, you know, whether they were personally experiencing uh, mental health challenges and struggles, crises, things like that, or whether they were caring for someone who was, um, it is extremely difficult to get treatment for these types of illnesses. The stigma is compounding, of course, um, their access to treatment and for that matter, even willingness to get care and find care for themselves or loved ones. Um, This is really a um, disheartening disease for people to have or to be experiencing through a loved one. What are some of those hurdles that kept them from receiving treatment? Well, we heard many hurdles, but some of the most common, uh, you know, one of the biggest ones I heard over and over was money. Even people who had private insurance or uh, Medicaid, you know, through Sooner Care here in Oklahoma, those people still said that with insurance coverage, they could not afford treatment. Therapy was too expensive with continual co-pays. Medication remained out of their reach. Um, Other treatment sessions that might be specialized types of care were maybe not covered by their insurance or only a small fraction was covered. Um, A lot of care was out of reach financially for folks really all over the state. And then, of course, access to that care, if you can afford it, is another hurdle, especially in rural areas. There's just a lack of treatment facilities and a lack of providers um, for these types of illnesses especially in rural communities. And so getting to these facilities, um, you know, during hours that they're open and, and, you know, getting through those long wait lists to see a provider was another big hurdle for folks. 
So uh, access to care is a challenge. Money's a challenge. What else are they running into? Well, stigma is one of the biggest problems that I heard over and over again through these surveys. Um, People said, you know, that mental illness is not seen as an illness, even though it is a diagnosis, that it's more often seen as, you know, someone is quote unquote crazy and and they just need to get over it. Right. A lot of people said, um, you know, friends and loved ones who tried to care for them would say extremely judgmental and um, things that made them feel misunderstood, like just, you know, perk up or uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which, of course, is not how illnesses work. Uh, Several participants also told us that that stigma is perpetuated by the fact that police officers respond to people in crisis for a good majority of the state. Um, One person in Duncan told me, people like me are not bad or flawed. We are not bad people trying to get good. We are sick people trying to get well. So this is the mentality that a lot of folks have. And that hurdle is another big one that they're trying to get over. And uh, the reference here about police responding, right? Any other kind of disease, you would expect an ambulance or a a doctor of some kind to respond if somebody was uh, having a medical crisis. That's exactly right. And that was uh, the point made by a lot of these folks is, you know, when someone's in a mental health crisis, police arrive and the result is often the person being handcuffed placed in the back of a police cruiser, and then maybe taken to the hospital for care, but it feels and looks like criminalization rather than care for mental health. So tell us a little more about the people who filled out the survey. Who are they? Well, half of the participants said they had personal experience with a mental health crisis. They themselves had experienced that. Uh, A larger majority of folks, about 80%, said they have watched a loved one struggle with mental illness. So, of course, there's a lot of overlap there, folks who are experiencing this themselves, as well as watching um, those that they love experience mental health challenges. Um, There are also residents from across the state. We saw folks in the metro areas in Oklahoma City and Tulsa participate, as well as many rural communities We had, you know, college students. We had several counselors and therapists who filled out the survey. Uh, A lot of those folks also, you know, crossover. They treat people with mental illness as well as struggle with their own mental health challenges. And several parents wrote to us about the challenges they found in caring for their children. Now, you've been collecting uh, the survey responses all year. Why is this the time to do the story? Well, the Department of Justice announced last month that it was investigating the state of Oklahoma um, and whether it has failed to provide treatment to residents specifically in Oklahoma County. Um, So in light of that investigation, we thought it was an appropriate time to share the thoughts, feelings, experiences, and stories of folks who um, potentially are not receiving care, according to this new investigation. Um, in its announcement, the DOJ said it would be looking into the state, the city of Oklahoma City, and the Oklahoma City Police Department's responses to people in crisis. What prompted that federal investigation? Well, there was a complaint filed with the Department of Justice by the ACLU and Oklahomans um, Disability Law Center, and they are basically claiming that there's a lack of affordable treatment options for Oklahomans, even those who are insured um, through Sooner Care. 
Is it too late for people to participate in the survey? Is there still time to collect a few more answers? Absolutely. We would love it if more people would share their experiences with us. This has been a very helpful tool for me as a reporter who covers mental health to hear these experiences and understand what life is like for folks who are experiencing that or caring for someone. So please go to our website, oklahomawatch.org slash mental health survey, um, and, and please share your story with us. All right. Well, thanks, Whitney. You can read uh, Whitney's story about the survey results or participate in the survey by visiting our website, oklahomawatch.org. Lionel Ramos covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. Today, he comes to Long Story Short with a personal experience A new report by Georgetown University's Center for Children and Families showed that Oklahoma leads the nation in the decline of its rate of uninsured children. And Lionel has firsthand experience with what that means for a family in need of health coverage for their kids. So, Lionel, before we get into your experience, tell us about the report. So, like you said, Oklahoma leads the nation in having uh, the greatest reduction in its uninsured children uh, when compared to other states in the country. Uh, the rate dropped from 8.6% to 7.4% from 2019 to 2021, or by a total of 11,000 children uh, that are now covered by Medicaid. And uh, so how did Oklahoma manage to get uh, that higher percentage of its children insured in such a short period of time? You mentioned Medicaid. Yeah, so this was caused by Oklahoma's implementation of Medicaid expansion for low-income adults. Uh, for which enrollment started in June 2021. Uh, According to the report, the number of enrolled adults, and by extension, their kids, uh, started increasing quickly in Oklahoma after that point. How about uh, other states? Are they making gains? Yes. There are 12 states, according to the report, that have seen more children get health insurance post-expansion of Medicaid. Uh, Among them are Colorado, Georgia, Texas, Illinois, uh, and a handful of others. Still, though, uh, Oklahoma ranks 44th overall, meaning it has the sixth highest number of uninsured children in the country. And how many children is that? 75,000 children in Oklahoma are still uninsured today. Uh, It's important to contextualize that number, though. States like Indiana, Georgia, and Arizona, they also saw improvements, but had over or still have over 100,000 kids uninsured uh, in 2021. And Texas is dead last and by a long shot uh, with 930,000 uninsured children in that state. Uh, now, going back to your personal experience, uh, what are what are Oklahoma children missing out on? You mentioned uh, those tens of thousands of uninsured Oklahoma kids. What does that mean to them? Well, uh, I can say that having last-minute access to Medicaid saved my life as a 14-year-old uh, for like Two weeks, I suffered some pretty serious back pain and didn't tell anyone as a teenager. Finally, when I couldn't stand up straight and I was bent over in pain, my mom asked me uh, what was wrong, and I told her I was hurting. Uh, We lived in Nuevo Laredo, Mexico at the time, and so she took me to a doctor who wrongfully diagnosed me with kidney stones. So here I am, uh, drinking as much water as I can, uh, terrified of the impending doom that is passing these stones eventually. And... um, Finally, one day at the gymnastics gym that my mom coached at in Laredo, Texas, uh, we used to cross the border every morning for for school and for work. Uh, 
it was a weekend this time around, so it's pretty quiet in the gym. Uh, I was just hanging out there with her. She was working. And I go to the restroom, and basically, as soon as I close the door and lock it, uh, I'm still hurting. Pass out. About an hour and a half, two hours go by. Uh, finally, someone unlocks the door and, and finds me in the restroom. Um, and they rush me to the emergency room in Laredo, Texas. Um, so at that point, uh, they get me into the emergency room, they put me on a bed, and they put me in the ER just like normal. Uh, and then uh, at that point, <laughs> the nurses come in, they start kind of telling my mom, you know, I'm hooked up to an IV and stuff like that. I'm in the emergency room, it's pretty dire. Uh, they sit down with my mom and they tell her, uh, we have to have, uh, this is not kidney stones. He actually has a kidney abscess, which is basically like a sack of, of uh, bacteria, of pus on my kidneys that is ruptured and spreading bacteria throughout my bloodstream and my body. Um, so I'm getting ready to check out as a little kid at this point. Um, and the surgery that I need is uh, imminent and uh, needs to happen within hours, basically. Um, we don't have insurance. Again, I live in Mexico. Uh, I'm a U.S. citizen, but you don't need insurance in Mexico. You can just go to a doctor, pay cash kind of thing. Um, the doctor, the surgeon walks in, tells my mom what kind of procedure that I have to have, which is uh, pulling out my kidneys and scrubbing them. Uh, gets her to agree to the surgery. As soon as he walks out, a state health department worker walks in to that little room that I was in and with the clipboard and some Medicaid forms, my mom signs them. Uh, she walks out and almost immediately, uh, they start deciding whether they're gonna fly me by helicopter or, by, or drive me via ambulance to a hospital in San Antonio, Texas, where there was a surgeon there that could do that operation on a child. Uh, apparently it was pretty risky. Um, they decided to go with the ambulance because I was pretty much stabilized. I had two IV bags in my arms at this point, one on each side um, with antibiotics. And so they drive me, it takes about two and a half hours, three hours to get there. Uh, and once I'm there, the surgeon takes a look at me and is basically like, this kid's too fragile. Um, we can't do this operation. We can't take out both of his kidneys and scrub them. Um, so we're going to just try something else, which was to put IV lines really all over my body. I had one in my foot, I had the two in my arms, and then I had one in each hand. Um, and they all had different antibiotics that I was getting pumped with for about six weeks. And uh, that ended up clearing the infection that I had in my body. And all of that got into motion after my mom signed the Medicaid uh, forms. And so what, what was involved in, uh, in getting, it was obviously a huge amount of money for that, yeah. that kind of work. Uh, what was involved in getting you insured? You mentioned they just came in with a clipboard. She signed the forms. Sounds like it was five minutes and done. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of hard to say exactly what went down because I mean, I was a kid and, and sick on the, on the bed and everything. Um, but when the health uh, department worker came in and she, she explained it to my mom, they sat down for a good 15 minutes, honestly, it didn't take very long, um, explained to her that the procedures that I needed were unaffordable, uh, that there was, that they were imminent, that I needed to have them and that she could decide whether to let me have them and get bills in the mail later or sign over uh, the, for Medicaid. And obviously the choice was clear and 
quite simple at that point. Medicaid was the answer. Um, and it, it saved my life. I watched my mom sign some papers that, you know, went up a bureaucracy and, and helped me out. And it meant a lot. And in, in that instance, uh, without Medicaid, especially the, the costs involved in that kind of procedure, uh, a few of us could probably uh, afford that ambulance ride alone, right? The three hour ambulance ride, uh, much less uh, all that extensive hospitalization and, and the work that was done. So, so the choice really is without Medicaid, either the patient dies uh, in that case or uh, the family's bankrupt because the, the medical bills would overwhelm uh, almost anybody. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly it. And and when this report came out, uh, I was talking to, to Mike Sherman, uh, my editor, and and we were thinking, of, you know, he asked a question, as journalists do, what, what are families gaining by getting Medicaid for their kids? What are they missing out on when they don't have it? And this is the first thing that came to my mind was watching my mom sign those papers and not only save us tens of thousands of dollars, um, but but my life, which is arguably worth more than that. I'm going to guess that bill was more than tens of thousands. (laughs) Uh, And so how did, how did things end up? Well, um, I was in, like I said, I was in the hospital for about six weeks in San Antonio. And after that time, they, they ran some blood work and stuff like that and determined that they'd eliminated the bacteria from my bloodstream. Um, I was good to go home and recover and the recovery took me a little while. Um, and probably most importantly, we did not get an excess of tens of thousands of dollars of worth of bills in the mail. Um, we have yet to see those bills and I'm sitting here today talking to you. So, all right. Well, thanks Lionel. Um, you can read Lionel's story about that, uh, report as well as the advances in getting kids in Oklahoma insured as well as Uh, the numbers who remain uninsured throughout the state. You can find all that on our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. This is Oklahoma Watch Executive Director Ted Struley. During the months of November and December, Oklahoma Watch is eligible for a matching grant from the Miami Foundation under their Newsmatch program. The Miami Foundation matches dollar for dollar every single donation given to a nonprofit news organization like ours that's participating in the program. That means that if you donate $5 a month, we get a match for $60. They match the entire year. If you can offer $10 a month, they'll match the whole year's worth $120. For $50 a month, they'll match $300. Every nickel you give is matched by the Miami Foundation as long as we receive it between November 1st and December 31st. And as a bonus, if you happen to be a brand new donor, we get an additional grant if we reach 100 new donors in the last two months of the year. If you enjoy the work we do at Oklahoma Watch, if you appreciate our investigative reporting, our holding government officials accountable, 
Take just a moment, please, and visit us at OklahomaWatch.org. Find our support page and pledge $5 a month, $10 a month, $50 a month, whatever you're comfortable doing. Every dollar of that will be matched. And if you're a new donor, we get a bonus on top of that. We're nonprofit. We don't sell ads. This is what keeps us going and what keeps our newsroom uh, keeping the public's business public. Thanks again.